Welcome to Maximal Being, a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition and fitness goals. So, let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and RN Graham. Hello, Maximal Beings. This is RN Graham. I'm here with Doc Mock and Sharif Ultrafit. And welcome to the second podcast here at Maximal Being. Today we'll be discussing, can you trust your doctor when it comes to nutrition? So to lead it off, uh, Doc Mock, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, uh, hey Maximal Beings, Doc Mock here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm an advanced GI doctor. That's a doctor that does a lot of fancy procedures related to cancer. Also specialize in nutrition and gut health. Sharif Ultrafit's here as well with us. What's up, everybody? Uh, my name is Sharif Ultrafit. Um, one of the new trainers, part of Maximal Being Team, a National Academy of Sports Medicine certified personal trainer, corrective exercise specialist, performance enhancement specialist, along with a few other things to go with that. I'm very excited about today's topic. And with that being said, we're going to bring it back to RN Graham to lead us off. I'm RN Graham. I am a ICU nurse at a few, at a few hospitals down here in South Florida. So in today's podcast, once again, we'll be going over, can you trust your doctor when it comes to nutrition, as well as speaking about ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, and the future of gyms in America right now. So last week, Doc Mock said something very interesting when he introduced himself. And I said, hmm, that's, that's interesting that he said that. So what he stated was, during medical school, he didn't know much about nutrition. So I'm like, wait, how is that possible? The majority of things that uh, people are hospitalized for can be, they can be solved by proper nutrition. So how is it that someone that's a doctor doesn't know much about nutrition in medical school? So my question to him to start it off is, why is that? Well, um, so I think that it's a, it's a problem with our educational system. Um, you know, unfortunately there just has been so much emphasis and there's such a large amount of information that's out there to learn. Um, you're stuck treating the end result of years and years of bodily abuse and you're treating health, but you're not creating wellness and there's no wellness care in America. Um, Insurance companies don't pay for well visits. They don't pay for gym memberships. Maybe they give you a kickback if you go a few times or get some steps once in a while. There's no nutrition counseling that's paid. It's all out of pocket for the most part. And so I think it's a, a globally a societal problem. There isn't a, a benefit on that. And for us doctors, you know, there's so much to learn in medical school that nutrition just kind of gets pushed back into the corner. Now that said, we do learn a little bit about diets. Um, there are popular diets that are taught in medical school to treat hypertension, like the DASH diet. The Mediterranean diet's also taught a lot of the time. Um, and we know some of the literature that's available there for helping coronary artery disease, but we don't take it a step further and question the evidence where it comes from and the validity. And I will tell you, my my whole nutrition program during medical school was six hours. Wow. That's six hours to create a lifelong 
sustainable practice that you have to implement and keep yourself well. So no wonder why there is a problem with uh, our educational system and doctors being able to counsel patients. Now, it's interesting that you said that because I did a little bit of research and I found out that the max training that doctors get as far as nutrition goes is 20 hours max training. Now, when it comes to things like cardiology, for example, it's said that cardiologists have to do 50 stress tests, 100 catheterizations, but yet only 20 hours of nutritional training. Now, I go to my doctor and I say, hey, listen, you know, I'm looking to lose a little weight. The majority of, the, of information that I'm getting back from people, they're saying, oh, well, you're, you know, you're fine. You just need to eat less, grab a salad. And this question is actually for you, Sharif. As someone that trains, eating less, is, is that going to benefit? So nutrition-wise, if you're eating less, you're absolutely not going. Maybe initially because you're shocking the system, right? But in the long run, you're not going to lose the weight because eventually your body's built for survival. So therefore, A, your metabolism is working a lot less now because you don't have to digest, right? So whenever you digest, you're burning calories as you're just sitting there digesting. So A, you're not going to burn as much calories. And then B, in the long run, your body goes into survival mode. And then it hangs on to whatever fat you're holding on there because it doesn't know when it's getting fed next. So it's got to hold on to that fat and feed on it slowly until you feed it what it needs. So maybe like the first two, three days, sure, you lose a few pounds. But after that, you won't. I don't know. That is not the right answer. So back to you, Doc Mock. My next question for you is, you brought up an interesting subject. Doctors do a lot of training. And there has to be give and take. If we introduce more nutrition, we have to take something away. So you would expect that within the last you know, 20, 30 years that they've been doing that. But funny enough, over the last 30 years, 37% uh, of medical schools had a single nutrition course, that's down now to 27%. As someone that's forward thinking as you are, how do you see this evolving maybe in the future, especially with the general public being more concerned about what they are putting in their body? Yeah, I think that um, doctors need to adapt and they need to meet the demand of society. Otherwise their patients are gonna be seeking out misinformation. I think, you know, a lot of what we're trying to train here with Maximal Being is, is teaching educational skepticism, right? So you take in the information, you have the ability to interpret it, but you interpret it with a grain of salt. And you want to look through what you're reading and, and look at validity, not just the headline, not just the clickbait that's at the top of it. Um, so wait, 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 not to cut you off here, but you're saying that Dr. Google doesn't know everything? <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, as a physician, before I really got down my wellness journey, you know, I, I was saying a lot of the canned answers to people too, because that's, that's all I knew, but I think it's up to the physician and it, and ultimately it is up to our educational system to further that knowledge for people. Otherwise our patients are going to be going to unreputable, uh, locations and they're going to get on crazy plans and they may end up hurting themselves. You know, I think, one of the things that people get stuck in are these fad diets, right? So when all of us were younger, the Adkins diet 
was super popular, right? High protein, high fat, minimal carbs. And, and what happens in a lot of these people? Heart attacks, cardiovascular disease. So people made the assumption, high fat diet leads to heart attacks. But there's so much in between there, namely inflammation, that keys into it. Now, the popular diets are things like ketogenic. Um, a lot of people are doing intermittent fasting, Whole30. Um, and there's a lot of great principles within these things, but there's also a lot of garbage information. I know that because we wrote some articles recently on ketogenics and culling through some of these things that people are posting like, no, you can't just eat globs of cheese all day and be healthy. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. I disagree. I'm sorry. Cheese is delicious. Once and, again, let's go back to my cheesecake. Uh, <laughs> it's all about the cheesecake, baby. It's all about the cheesecake. But yeah. please continue. Um, but, you know, and, and getting on these fad diets can potentially hurt your metabolism in the long term, right? Because you're ping-ponging your weight. You have certain hormones that control your ability to sense hunger, like leptin and ghrelin. And then your insulin levels also will vary based upon your weight as well. And so if your weight is constantly fluctuating, those levels are not going to be great at regulating um, the rest of your system over time. So it's all about building those sustainable changes. But like we are talking about earlier, people think it's a numbers game only. Do you think it's a numbers game only? Mr. UltraFit. Um, no, I don't think it's a numbers game. I don't think uh, people should be chasing numbers as far uh, as weight loss, as far as weight training. Um, personally, I think you should do take the proper steps to get ahead, but understand that it's a long journey, right? People that chase the numbers are usually like short-term um, thinkers as far as opposed to a um, long-term goal for the longevity, for a longer health um, lifespan, um, stuff like that. So chasing numbers, and it only sets you up um, for failure, really, because if you don't hit your number, you're discouraged and you don't want to even try anymore, right? But if you don't set any number to lose weight or any number to bench press, you gradually go up without even noticing. And before you know it, you're at that number, not even realizing it. <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't chase the numbers. I'd take the proper steps, um, eat the right way. It's really more simple than people think it is. Yes. Problem is, like you said, there's so much information online that people resort to um, because Unfortunately, they look at you doctors as God because you went to school for 10 years, right? You know your stuff. You know your medicine. You're in the medical years, field. But... <laughs> <laughs> Even more, right? So I should try. That just means you. I have I more student you. loan debt, basically. That's all it means. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But at the end of the day, so when they don't get their answer from their doctor, they just go to Google or Hopefully they seek a professional that knows what they're talking about. Most of the time they don't. So they give them the wrong information. And again, it sets them up for failure because they're not doing things the right way. And you'll get to hear that, oh, it's just in my genetics. I come from big bone family. All my family's fat, my cousins, my sisters, my brothers. Yes. And that's totally not true. When I was going to school, I actually did a paper on um, identical twins that were separated at birth. Wow. Growing up in different lifestyles, different parents, and one grew up to be obese and one grew up to be in shape. Wow. Interesting. I mean, identical twins, that's same genetics, right? For the yeah. most part. 
Yeah. We're identical twins, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they actually, they did a study. There's this study that they send out to doctors every single year by Medscape. They're a very reputable company. Um, one of the things they report on is uh, lifestyle choices. So they ask you what type of car you drive, student loan debt, all these sorts of things. But they ask people about um, nutrition this year, which was really neat. And um, in fact, 55% of uh, women physicians were trying to lose weight. About 48% of male physicians were trying to lose weight. Um, and a lot of them uh, exercise less than two times per week. Another interesting thing I thought of the baby boomers generation of physicians were the ones that were actually exercising and moving around more than anybody else. Maybe, maybe you know, they're just a, a different point in their career. So, you know, they have less pressure for productivity. I'm not sure. And the common thing that they um, seem to say as an issue with people losing weight is motivation. People have this concept that people that are obese are just not motivated. But it's so much more complicated than that, um, which I think we're talking about before. And where do, they also um, talked, to, talked about what, as a physician, you would recommend people to eat. Um, and so the most commonly recommended diet was vegetables and protein, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> next common was, was the Mediterranean diet. And, and we know the Mediterranean diet actually has really great science behind it. Um, I recommend Mediterranean diet for a lot of my pancreatic patients because of the fat content you're switching from, um, saturated fats in the American diet, which come from animal sources to more monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, in particular, monounsaturated vegetable sources like olive oil, avocados, and, and fish. Um, so that seemed to be the most popular one. I was actually surprised that physicians were in about 10% or so recommending intermittent fasting, um, and the ketogenic diet, but whether they actually know what that means or not, I think that that would require further study. Yes. So as a physician, if you had to recommend one diet, what would your favorite diet be or the diet to recommend? <laughs> so, uh, Probably none of them. <laughs> good, good answer. Very good yeah, answer. Is, I, is really that was a, a trick question. Yeah. No, I, I tell people eat real food, eat enough food, and then try to eat local food if you can. Eat what's in season. Um, making easy little changes. You know, I always tell people if you need a PhD or a degree in biochemistry, to say the words that your food is made of, don't put it in your body. Monosodium glutamate. <laughs> That's right. But if it's a carrot, eat a carrot. You know, eat as many carrots as you want. Um, I tell people, cut the plate in half. At least half of that plate should be vegetables, potatoes and corn, not really vegetables, right? Those are just kind of starches. Um, mm -hmm. But anything else with color, you know, put on the plate. And diversity is, is key. A lot of the proponents of the Paleolithic diet will argue that grains were not eaten by our ancestors, which is actually not true. They've looked at Neanderthal skeletons and they've found traces of grains inside of their teeth. So we know that our, our ancestors actually did cultivate and eat grains, even if they were in the wild. And I think it's, again, diversity is the key. It's the key in life. It's the key in your diet. So there you go, people, right there. That's your information. Our ancestors 
not only ate grain, but they did not floss very well at all. <laughs> floss your teeth. Floss your teeth. <laughs> so back to the education portion of what you went through to become a doctor. Did you take calculus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both in high school and in college. Yep. Did, do you Use ever... Calculus. I mean, how often do you advise your patients on mathematical studies of continuous change? Yeah, no. Uh, the prerequisites for medical school are asinine. Doctors should be trained in statistics to be able to interpret scientific studies. But learning about calculus is just not useful for you know your day-to-day living, day-to-day patient encounters. I would say the same with organic chemistry. Sorry if there are any organic chemistry teachers li- listening, but never used it since I've learned it. So you're forward thinking, and that's uh, part of the reason why I always listen to your advice, because I wouldn't be where I am today. Oh, thanks, buddy. Without that advice. (laughs) Shucks. You know, how do you envision this change taking place where these physicians nowadays can incorporate more nutrition into what they're doing for their patients? Yeah, I, I think that there needs to be a formal curriculum that's set up and, and not only that, but like, a you know, for lifetime, lifetime learning, not just in medical school, you got to hit people early. That's when people are most apt to learn. But all throughout life, people are going to have patients coming to them and saying, hey, I'm on the ketogenic diet. I have pancreatitis. Is this a good idea? And it's not. And if you don't know what that means, if you've just read on, a, you know, somebody's Twitter feed what the ketogenic diet is, you're going to lead your patient down the wrong pathway and potentially do do harm. But it's also, it's not a lot of the doctor's fault too, right? They just don't know. Um, and you don't know what you don't know, right? They, they, they've been taught a certain thing in medical school. They think that that's the right way to do it. And everybody else that's saying all of these things on social media are just wacky. Yeah. So, um, it, we, we, we need to be aware and we need to be lifelong learners and we need to use that educational skepticism that we've all learned throughout time to interpret the data that people that are non-physicians are turning out, like nutritionists, like ex- exercise physiologists. We need to be able to look at their data with, with the eye that we have been trained to cultivate and be able to determine is that literature useful or is it not useful. You know, the problem is most people... Um the average person has so much trust in their, in their doctors as they should, right? Mm Because that's why you go see your doctor because they're going to take care of you. They went to school, they understand the body and they just trust all their information. Even as little nutrition information as they give them, they just take that and run with it. Right? Yes. And in most cases, a lot of doctors are obese or maybe not even obese, but just a little on the overweight, right? So yeah. how, how could I trust and follow this guy when he's not even in shape? Right. Can you touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if your doctor is obese or non-obese and they recommend you to get chemotherapy for your cancer, you need to listen to them, right? If you are having heart problems and you need a cardiac catheterization, you should listen to them, right? Always be skeptical. But, you know, those are the areas that they have been trained to learn properly. But, yeah, remember that physicians are people, too. And like we talked about in that Medscape sur- uh, survey, um, 
we're going through the same things that other people are going and navigating through our own health and wellness processes. There was a study done out of Texas that reported that 78% of healthcare workers, so that includes all people that work in healthcare, were at least overweight. Um, and physicians were around 35%, slightly lower than that total group, but only about 8% of those exercised significantly during the course of the week, meaning greater than one time. Um, so just remember that there is a human aspect of things. I would say that if you're a doctor and you know, you're recommending weight loss and you yourself are overweight, then perhaps you just should introspect a little bit and, um, you know, wonder why you're giving the advice that you are and do you have basis for it? But it brings a, a point that we talked about last week in that, um, power of studies is important, right? You, if you're obese is a power of one, you only know that one experience for weight loss. And so does your own experience correlate to everybody? Not necessarily. And so that's where the studies come into play, where you have to pull it. So it's up to them to be inquisitive and maybe they're on their own journey, but they know the tools and they're just in the process of implementing them. But also know your limits, know when to employ gentlemen like yourselves to help out with these solutions. Um, and I think that a lot of physicians are smart enough to know their own limits. Fair enough. Fair enough indeed. Yes. This guy actually knows what he's talking about. Maybe I should trust him. <laughs> it's really interesting, you know, in do, working with our clients, I think the biggest hurdle that people have to overcome is that you can eat more food and and lose fat. And, and I think it's because of what doctors have told them. I think it's because of what the media has told them. Um, it's hard to get over that hurdle, but it is the truth. You just listen to your body. And if you eat food of high quality, right? Nutrient dense, like you had talked about Sharif. Um, that is the key to success is eating real food that is, is full of good food and good real nutrition. Again, that biochemistry rule plays into effect and you can eat a mountain of vegetables and you'll be full from the fiber. You'll be satiated from all the good micronutrients. You'll fight cancer from the phytochemicals. Um, and you also get to eat a lot of food, which is awesome. Yeah. So. <laughs> so much food that you can't really get to your calories. You have to yeah. force feed. Yeah. And that's another thing when you tell people how like to eat properly and they're like, oh, I need, I need to snack in between. I always get hungry. And you try to convince them that if you do it the proper way, you're not going to be hungry. Right. You're eating less, but you're eating more often. You're eating good foods that you have to eat so much of it to get to where you want to get and that it's physically I don't, I don't want to say impossible because everything is possible but it's hard to eat all that in one sitting absolutely and then when you're hungry again you're more than welcome to grab some more of that or another thing that complements that exactly and if you if you've done the work you need to refuel the engine you know you have to eat you can't run eight miles and then starve yourself believe me i've been there like you can't eat 1200 calories and run eight miles every other day it does not work your body will sure not adapt no i way. had a client recently asked me you know that they were still hungry right um they were coming off of somebody else's plan and they were looking to kind of retool their plan because they just were constantly hungry having food cravings dreaming about food watching the food network and that's your subconscious kind of coming into the forefront and saying like, 
you need to eat more. So basically all we did is up the protein content by two, you know, two times, and, and that has gotten them leaner. They now have that tree on their back, and, um, and they're not hungry anymore. And they, and they stopped watching the Food Network, but <laughs> maybe not a bad thing. So where do you think the nutrition problem starts? Because like you said, by the time they come see you, you're trying to fix many, many years of beating up your body the wrong way. Yeah. Whether it's physically, nutritionally, emotionally. Yeah. Right? So you're fixing many years of work. So where does it start? And how do we maybe try to put a stop to it? I think it starts at our, our food system and our government. And the two are intertwined. We're seeing that right now with coronavirus, right? We're seeing our food system is getting shut down. There are now more people that are starving in the world than there ever have been due to cut funding with the WHO, due to our food service lines not shipping food to places that they need due to scarcity um, from people buying up tons of food and probably not the right food. And so that's when it's, it's good to take a step back and look at what we've done wrong, right? For years, we had big grain dictating the conversation right? We, we know, right, from learning cardiology, healthy uh, Cheerios were like the way to go, right? That's a health food is eating Cheerios and cereal all the time. Um, and it's because big grain paid money to our government who created the food pyramid. And, and we were all taught that in, in childhood. We didn't know any better, right? Our, our parents didn't know any better. We trust these people with authority, like like you were talking about with physicians. So it all trickles down. But getting back to those basics, getting back, learning the history of food, learning where food comes from, what our ancestors did, where they went wrong with the agricultural revolution in certain points, probably the industrialization of it and processing of foods. And again, just getting back to those basics of eating real food and eating enough food. I really think that is the key um, to to revamping our our system of nutrition. I agree with you. Um, I think it starts with the parents because um, obviously as a baby, a younger child, you don't have any control of what you buy or how to cook or any of that. So it definitely starts with the parents. So hopefully the, the parents are have um, enough education to feed their kids the proper food to keep them healthy so they can... Um, grow up healthy, you know, nothing. It's very sad when you look, when I look at the pool and I see a 10 year old that's obese, you know, in my head, I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. But I feel sorry for him because it's not his fault. And by the time he realizes how to approach fixing the problem, now he's 17, 18, he's even more obese and he has so much work to catch up on Yeah. because his parents, didn't educate them the right way, or maybe they didn't have enough education to know the proper food to feed them. So it's sad that it starts at an early age and then people struggle with it because not everybody has the discipline to reverse a lot of the things that happen to you, right? Not everybody has that mindset. Yeah. So they just give up on it. They say, I was like that my whole life. I'm just going to be fat for the rest of my life. And you know, it leads to cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, all kinds of problems that shortens your lifespan by so much yeah. when it could have been easily avoided. Yeah, Medscape doctor survey number two for reason why people are obese is genetics. 
number one yeah, motivation. Right. I think both of those are just cop-out answers. I think it's way more complicated than that, like we've been discussing. Have you guys been eating differently during coronavirus? Have you changed like food sources or amounts of food, types of food? I mean, I know that we kind of have tweaked things, but we, we were shopping pretty you know different than I think a lot of people do even before this happened, so. Um, personally, I think, I mean, it definitely made me, I was cooking more often, obviously at home, right? Less restaurants open. Yeah. So, um, that's basically the only change cooking more often at home, which leads to a healthier meal naturally, right? No matter how bad your, your home cooked meal is, mm -hmm. it's way better than a restaurant meal, right? Absolutely. Um, health wise, at least. Right. Yeah. So let's say you're deep frying something, right? I'm not, a, I'm not suggesting to deep fry something. But if you were to deep fry something at home, it's a lot cleaner than deep frying something in the restaurant in oil that's been used for a week and so it's many things are in it. You know what I mean? Yep. And all these right. things are it's, causing It's your own clean oil. You don't leave it in there soaking up the oil for so long. You're able to control certain elements to make it a little bit healthier than it would be um, eating somewhere, right? Right. You can use olive oil, sunflower oil, a, a healthier source of oil. Absolutely. What about I you? Try to always, yeah. I try to always educate my clients and tell them that, you know, anytime you go out to eat, you lost the battle right there. Yeah. All right, Graham. For me, for me, um, I definitely have actually been eating a lot healthier um, because restaurants are closed. You know, I work on average 60 hours a week. It's a lot of hours. So. It's a hardworking man. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, and I, and I work overnight, so a lot of times I'm just trying to grab whatever I can. But with everything being shut down, I had no choice but to say, okay, first of all, I'm trying to tell people to eat properly, and I'm sitting here going to so-and-so and so-and-so. -and -so, I won't say any names. Um, <laughs> but how can I be a model of what I'm preaching if I'm not doing what I'm saying, you know? It's the same thing going back to the doctors, you know? I mean, I'm sorry, but... If I'm taking advice from you and your cholesterol is higher than mine, uh... yep. so yeah, but, but I've saved a ton of money cooking at home. Mm -hmm. You know, I go to the grocery store, you know, that's basically for me, it's work, grocery store, get gas. That's it. Yeah. You know, when everything was shut down, things are opening back up now, but even so, I'm still not eating up because I, I actually enjoy what I cook. So I have definitely been eating healthier. I've been eating more because I am eating healthier. Um, and it has given me the energy I need to push through, you know, my hard work weeks. Yeah, we, we are really uh, lucky here in Ohio to have a great local food system. So we have a butcher shop that's a mile from where we live. They raise all their own animals. They probably know the, the name of the animal that you're eating. And it wasn't until I moved here and had one of their, you know, cuts of meat that I was like, oh my God, that's what a steak was supposed to taste like my whole life. What have I been missing out on? This is terrible. So I bet. yeah, and we have farms. You can get this beautiful produce that's in season. We're growing our own food on our rooftop deck. It doesn't get more local than that. And it, cool. it just tastes better. The nutritional quality is so different. So I think more than ever, it's just important to simplify, simplify your life's, simplify the food system, shop small, shop local. And, and that, that's how you're going to lose, lose that fat. Do you guys want to transition into some listener mail? Yeah, definitely. Let's go. Uh, let's get to that. 
So, um, so the first uh, piece of listener mail was really for Sharif Ultrafit, and they were asking, Sharif Ultrafit, what do you think is the future of gyms in America? That's quite a loaded question there, but that is a who better question. to answer it than you? Ooh. Um, okay. Um, honestly, with everything that's been going on, the COVID and stuff like that, I feel like virtual training is taken over. Um, you can stay in the comfort of your own house, subscribe to some sort of channel or a website or even your own trainer. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll work with you live one-on-one, um, send you all the nutrition plans, all the workouts, um, anything you need, really. There's also so many equipment that are taken over home workouts, such as the Peloton or the mirror. There's so many of them out there, really. Um, so I think that's really what it what it's leading to. And the times that we're going through COVID and the no contact and stuff like that is helping push that even further. So I think that's what the future is going. Some people still, me personally, I like the face-to-face interaction. So I like going to gym. I like taking a group training class in the gym and um, seeing everybody around me sweat and struggle and have the instructor yell at me and push me. Um, But I think virtual training is definitely taking over. So gyms are going to have to um, do something different to stay alive. And that's coming from me being in the fitness industry, right? I work in a lot of uh, uh, gyms and I, I see, well, first of all, there's before the COVID, there's been so much competition, right? You see two, three gyms on every corner. So competition alone is making gyms hard to survive, let alone the COVID and now the virtual training. So it's going to be a tough time for gym owners. Yeah, I so, mean, no, go, go ahead, Aaron Graham. No worries. Um, regarding that, I have actually recently went back to the, the physical gym myself um, and I'm having a little trouble in there. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I look around and, you know, maybe I have a different perspective than a lot of people because I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm assisting with intubations on a regular basis. And I know the reality behind what's going on. And, you know, it's we have rules uh, where we live where you do have to wear a mask to the gym. And you wear your mask and you get to your area, which is, you know, you have your six feet, generally speaking. Um, then you can remove your mask so that you can work out. It's hard to work out in a mask. I get it. I do. But at the same time, there are those individuals out there that say, you know what? Screw you. I'm not wearing a mask. Um, and it bothers me. And even when I was in the gym today, I said, you know what? I don't know if this is for me. I don't know if I want to, to deal with this because... I'm not concerned about myself. I'm a help. I'm a young, healthy individual, but I'm concerned about my patients because if I'm taking care of somebody, if I'm not on the COVID unit, I'm taking care of somebody, and I have COVID and I'm asymptomatic, I can still spread it to that person. So, you know, I battle that because I have to do what is best for not just myself, but for my family and my patients. So I agree with Sharif uh, in the fact that maybe I'm going to work out more at home or try my best to hit the gym on those off times when people aren't there. But I think people need to be a little bit more aware of the fact that, listen, it's, it's a mask. 
you know, it's, it's implemented not just so that you are not putting yourself and other people at risk, but so the gym can stay open. You know, if we have another huge outbreak, what happens then? You know, do we have to shut down? Where are you going to go work out then? You're going to end up back home. So just do the things that you need to do to keep your gym open, to keep yourself, your family, and your friends safe. Yeah, I know for me that the gym was a place of relaxation and de-stress. And when you have to think about coronavirus and wear a mask and look at where you're standing and look at how far you are away from other people, then, you know, it's not as stress relieving. So I think that, you know, you both hit on a lot of really amazing points that we're probably going to move two directions, training at home and then using people like Sharif UltraFit who can do one-on-one training with you that's really safe, that can you can safely socially distance. You know all the equipment is sterile and, and well taken care of and well maintained. So I think that's the way that, that our world is going to move, at least at this time. But I guess we'll see where it goes in the future. So that ding was actually another question. And I'm going to direct it towards you, Mr. Dotmok. Oh. Ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting. So I know we had a question regarding that. Can you go over the question, please? Yeah, yeah. So um, so uh, ketogenic diet and, and intermittent fasting are like a, a well-played marriage. It's like, um, you know, hot sauce on a on a hard-boiled egg. It's it's like hot sauce on a scrambled egg. It's like something that just goes really well together. Um, you, when you're fasting for at least 8 to 12 hours, your body will actually go into ketosis. You're going to start to mobilize your liver stores of uh, sugars or glycogen, and you're going to convert those into ketones so that your brain can use them to fuel your bodily processes before you eat. If you introduce carbohydrates, that process stops. If you continue that process with intermittent fasting over time, your body will adapt and you will start to mobilize fat stores. That's exactly how the ketogenic diet works. And so that's why the two play really well together is because they're both, they both have to do with mobilizing fat stores and, and, and ketone bodies being generated. Shall we wrap things up, gentlemen? Yes, let's do it. All right. In, in conclusion, yeah. Shop around the outside perimeter of your grocery store. Don't go into your aisles. If you keep around the outside, you'll be safe. That's all your fresh foods, your meats, um, your milk, your eggs. The minute you go in the aisles, that's where all the box food starts. That's when you lose the battle. That's when you pick up the cheesecake. <laughs> yeah. Eat enough food, Cheese. eat real food, and try to eat local. Sharif? Yes. Oh, God. I was going to say, Sharif UltraFit, where can we find you? Oh, you can find me on Sharif Ultrafit on Instagram, Sharif Abdulatif on Facebook, or you can also find me on MaximalBeing.com. And then Aaron Graham, what's going on with Maximal Being these days? So Maximal Being, we still have our giveaway going on. I believe there is a couple days left on our giveaway for our, um, our AirPods. So please visit our Instagram for that. You can also find us, of course, on Twitter, at Maximal Being, Facebook Maximal Being, and once again Instagram, uh, where we do where we do do our giveaways at Maximal underscore Being. Please listen to our podcast. Tell us what you think. We're always looking for more information and ways that we can reach you guys. You can find us on YouTube, Shape Dot Mock, 
where can we uh, listen to the podcast? Uh, so it's going to be uh, available on all streaming services. We're going to put all of this up on YouTube so that you can actually watch us and um, see our interactions and maybe some puppies will make an appearance at some point in time. Um, <laughs> also wanted to mention that the kombucha course, which I have a fresh batch here of clove, cardamom, ginger, and black pepper delicious is available at maximalbeing.com slash courses. If you want any of our gear or a custom fitness, nutrition, or gut health plan by any one of our wonderful team members, uh, head on over to maximalbeing.com slash shop. And with that said, I think that's another wonderful podcast. I appreciate and have such gratitude for both of you for all of the camaraderie and the discussion. I think it was wonderful. Yes, thank you guys for having us over. Make sure you like, subscribe. See you next time. See you next time. doing this thing next week but six out of ten americans don't do it enough in fact aaron graham's probably doing it right now before his shift that's right we're gonna be talking about sleep